Well, this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, can you open them and turn there? And please stand as we read. Uh, Before I get to the passage, I just wanted to mention um, in passing that the Christmas gifts have arrived in Liberia. So they've made it all the way across the Atlantic. They're safely in Box's house, and they are just awaiting Christmas morning. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure we're going to try to do the live thing again, I think, so that you can watch as the kids get their presents. So thank you so much for your generosity there. And they've made it. Ephesians chapter 5. This morning we're continuing going through this letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison. Starting at verse 1 and ending at verse 7. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, you could make a pretty good case that the most important part of the sermon is now officially over because you have spoken. But God, I pray that you would use me, use my lips, use my limited human brain to somehow convey uh, the meaning that you have communicated to us through your words this morning. Send your Holy Spirit over our hearts, convict us, and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I'm a 90s kid, and one of, I think marketing agencies have learned that one of the best ways to target 90s kids is through nostalgia. We're very nostalgic people. We love bringing back old products like Surge, French Toast Crunch, uh, Slime Time Live, Rocket Power, Hey Arnold, anything that reminds us of our childhood uh, is a pretty good marketing, it's a pretty solid decision by, I mean, Pepsi Blue, anything that reminds us of our childhood Kind of the days when everything was okay, everything, the days when uh, we'd go to school, come home, watch Nick Jr., watch Cartoon Network, whatever it was. Um, they've learned that one of the easiest ways to get to the hearts of 90s kids is to bring back something. And one of the things that I was thinking about as we go through this passage today kind of gives me that nostalgic feeling. And that's, do you, do you remember the WWJD bracelets? I think that was a 90s thing. I don't know. I wasn't alive before the 90s, so maybe that was an 80s thing. But I remember those being popular when I was in elementary school. And I was born in like 90. So I'm barely a 90s kid, I guess. The WWJD bracelets, everyone had their own color. I think I had an orange one for Clemson. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think I had an orange one. Everyone kind of had their own color. It was kind of your style. And I remember the bracelets being mostly perceived and understood as a good thing, but there was also some criticism of the bracelets. And one of the main criticisms that I heard against the WWJD bracelets is, when you ask the question, what would Jesus do? The answer is not always what you should do, because Jesus was God in the flesh. And so Jesus did some things that we shouldn't do, like looking into other people's hearts and calling them out on their sin because we can't do that. Dying on the cross for other people's sins, we cannot do that. We are not capable of doing that. Um, 
just different things that you look at the life of Jesus that really should not be imitated. We should take it as an example and, and admire him for it, but to imitate it would actually not be proper as Christians. So we're to imitate certain parts of Jesus, but not other parts. So the question, the answer to the question is not always the right answer, I guess, was the criticism against the bracelets. Another criticism that we would encounter with the WWJD bracelets is the way that we answer that question is not always informed by scripture. That is to say that our understanding of who Jesus is, is oftentimes a product of what we want Jesus to be. And I think you see this throughout a lot of cultures, a lot of Christian history. There's a, there's a lot of times where we tend to take Jesus and make him what we want him to be. We take Jesus and we isolate the attributes that we like about him. And then we say, this is what Jesus is like. He affirms my values. He affirms my worldview. So for some people who are a little more confrontational, they see the table flipping Jesus. And they say, that's what Jesus was about. Jesus was going around calling everyone a brood of vipers. He was flipping tables. Man, he was getting things done and you did not want to mess with Jesus. Then on the other hand, you have the kind of hippie Jesus who loves everyone and affirms everyone and he's super tolerant and uh, he, just wants to, he just wants everyone to be happy and love, like everything's about love. And so you have that kind of soft Jesus. Then, then you have the sort of more traditional Jesus. He came to set things on the right track and he came because the world was going crazy and he came to set it right and to teach everyone the right way to live. And so he, he kind of gets things back on track. And then for, for Molly and me, we have the orphan care Jesus. Jesus is all about caring for orphans and caring for the afflicted and the downcast and the oppressed because that's what we do. So we like that Jesus. We like that side of Jesus. And the truth is, all of those are kind of right, but none of them are completely right. Because what you find is that when you, when you start to look at who Jesus was, he's a very, very complex person. And you could make a case that really no one understood him during his time. The, the ministry of Jesus could kind of be summarized at, in one word, which is like confusion. Everyone was confused by Jesus. Now, that's not to say that's the only way I would uh, summarize Jesus' ministry, but it seems that everywhere he went, he was just confusing people with parables, or he would perform a miracle, and then they were like, wait, why did he do it this way? Or he just was always a very confusing person. It wasn't until the end of his ministry that even his disciples said, finally, you're speaking to us in clear language. And so Jesus was just a person who was hard to nail down. And the, the problem is that we often take Jesus and we make him who we want him to be. Rather than allowing ourselves to follow Christ and be made in his image, oftentimes we take Jesus and make him in our own image. And we make him subservient to our needs, our desires, our values, and our worldviews. So what's the key to that? What's the remedy to that? Scripture. I mean, this sounds like a kind of cliche Bible study church answer, but read the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, you will find a Jesus who makes you uncomfortable. Like, that's what I find. Whenever I read the Gospels, I, find, I, I come across Jesus, I, I look at the words he's saying, and there's always at least something that makes me uncomfortable. Because I have to acknowledge, Jesus said that. Jesus said I should live this way, or Jesus lived this way. And that doesn't really fit with what I think a good Christian should do, or the way I think the Christian life should be lived. Because let's be honest, we all have, we all have like a way we look at the Christian life, and we think this is the most important thing about the Christian life. And I've noticed throughout my own life, my standard for what makes a Christian is always changing, but it's always kind of what I'm good at. 
Like the things that I'm good at, that's what makes a good Christian. So I look at other people and I hold them to that standard and I say, well, they should do those things. But then the other things that Jesus teaches that I'm not good at, I find a way to kind of undo those passages or look over them. But if I take an honest approach to the gospels, they make me really uncomfortable. And that's sort of the call to us as Christians is if we are to be asking the question, what would Jesus do? And then in turn, following that, then we should get to know Jesus. We are, after all, in a relationship with him. We really emphasize that, that we are in a relationship with Christ. He's a personal God, and he has come to have this intimate, personal relationship with us. But the problem is, this isn't a normal relationship as we think of it. Because a normal relationship, you can go get coffee with the person. You can talk with them. You can text them. You can message it, whatever it is, you, you can have interactions with them. You can play football with them. You can, you know, meet up with them and talk to them, look them in the eye and have a conversation. But it doesn't quite work like that with God. See, the way we, we communicate to God is through prayer, which can be difficult sometimes because not, God isn't talking directly back to us and answering us. And then the way that we hear from God, the clearest way we hear from God is by reading his word. And so if we want to get to know God, we have to get to know his word and read his word. And so as we read the Gospels, we get to know Jesus, and he comes to life, and it convicts us of certain things, it affirms certain things, and I believe that is where we kind of hone in our ability to answer the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Let me go back to scripture. You know, when, uh, when someone passes away, a lot of times we'll talk about them in the way that they would, would respond if they were still here. You know, this person would be rolling in their grave, or they're probably rolling in their grave because they would not approve of what's going on here. You know, oh, if this person were here for this gathering, they would be so excited and so happy to see all of you. Or, you know, at a wedding, you know, this person, if we, Molly and I are at weddings all the time, and they always talk about deceased relatives and how happy they would be with the choice that the couple has made and the other spouse. And so what we're ultimately communicating in those moments is we know this person well enough to know how they would respond in this situation. We know this person well enough to understand who they are and what they value. And so we're able to draw this inference on how they would respond, what they would say, what they would approve of, and what they would disapprove of. We are called to do the same thing with Jesus. To get to know Jesus in such a way that whenever we encounter a situation, we can say, I know what Jesus would do in this situation. Jesus would be so upset here. Jesus would be hurt. Jesus would show compassion on this person. And I think that's what we should start to do is think, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then rather than going back to our own desires of what we want Jesus to do, go back to scripture and say, let's think about a similar situation that Jesus was in. How would he have responded? Where was Jesus's heart in this and what are his values? And so as we come to this passage this morning, really the central focus of this passage is found in verse one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That's really what the WWJD bracelet is getting at. Be imitators of Jesus, be an imitator of God. And the Greek word there for imitate is actually, uh, it's a positive word. Every time this word appears that I could find in the New Testament, it's a positive meaning. So uh, another translation would be follow. Sometimes Paul says, follow me or imitate me. And so this is a good thing that we're supposed to do. But what, what's weird is the Greek word is uh, mimetai, mimetai, which you might recognize the word mimic is in there. And, and usually when we think of mimicking, we think of something that's not great. Like 
if, you, if you're a parent and you have kids, if your kids are mimicking you or they're mimicking each other, usually that word means something bad. Like, you know, my, my siblings and I used to do that. Uh, Mom, she's mimicking me. Mom, she's mimicking me. Stop copying me. Stop copying me. You know, and like that kind of thing. But that's what we're called to do with God. To look at him and then just kind of, the second he does something, we do something. The second he does something, we do something. And if, you know, if it were a bad thing, God would say, stop copying me. We'd be like, stop copying me. But, you know, obviously it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's, it, the connotation there is good, that we should be imitating God. Um, I actually thought of Chris Farley. The, I might be really dating myself here. The Chris Farley SNL skit where he's the motivational speaker. And he says, uh, I can't remember the kid's name, David Spade. I can't remember his name. But he says, you know, you're over here. I'm over here. You're over here. I'm over here. We're going to be buddies. And then he jumps on the coffee table and breaks it. And uh, it's hilarious. But it's kind of like that idea that we, we are to follow so closely the example that Jesus set for us so that people will look at us and they see Christ in us. That's the point. That when people look at us, they see Christ. They see someone who is set apart, someone who is different from the world because they are imitating the example that Christ set for us. And what we see here, and this is important, that this imitation is not merely passive. It's not only about what we don't do, but it's also about what we do. We see in verse two a more uh, uh, kind of the Paul unpacking what it means to be an imitator of God. It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. So what does it mean to imitate God? Walk in love. Walk in love and that love is characterized and defined by sacrifice. Sacrifice being the root of that love. The giving of oneself to something else, to a greater cause, to another person, the giving of oneself in a, as a loving act of a sacrifice. That is at the core of what it means to imitate God is to give yourself up, to sacrifice and to define your life by love. See, there's actually a response to the WWJD bracelet. And I, I see these more commonly now. Um, does anyone know the response? I'm sorry, I love interaction so much. This is hard for me to just stand here and talk. Does anyone know the response to WWJD? Yeah. He would love first, HWLF. And I like those bracelets because, I mean, that's kind of what it's, what's going on here in this passage. What would Jesus do? He would love first. Now, the only thing I'm not particularly keen on is the word first because I think that that's what Jesus would do all the time. I don't think that love is something you do first. I think love is something that sort of encapsulates every action that Jesus does. I think love defines the way he acts. Um, but that's a kind of nitpicky thing. Um, re but really, it's great. It's a great idea that Jesus would love first. And that's ultimately what this passage is getting at, is that if we want to be imitators of God, we love. We walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice. Paul actually brings this up again in Ephesians 5. And I assume we'll get to this probably after Christmas, the passage about husbands and wives. Um, so I don't want to take too much away from that sermon, but really like you see the same thing echoed when Paul gives the command to husbands. He says in chapter five, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you see that similar theme echoed there that at the root of what it means to love someone else is to sacrifice and to give yourself up for them. And in the sacrifice that Jesus did, like a lot of people look at this passage especially the Ephesians 5, uh, when it's talking about husbands and wives. And I, I hear this sometimes at weddings, and a lot of times when they preach, wives submit to your husbands, there's this sort of tension that comes into the room. And everyone's like, okay, how is he going to explain it away? Or, you know, that, that's kind of, there's a lot of tension in that passage. 
But then when it gets to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, her, there's no tension there. But really, when you think about it, look at the command that is being given to husbands. Give yourselves up for your wife as Christ gave himself up for the church and loved her. Do you remember how Christ gave himself up for the church? He was torture executed for the church, literally experienced the fullness of hell for the church. I mean, that is a, those are, that's a command that literally cannot be fulfilled. That cannot be followed. And I think that husbands, in some sense, should be like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I'm expected to do that? That's not fair. But you really usually don't hear protests from the husbands on that one. Because wives are never commanded to love their husbands. They're commanded to submit. But husbands are commanded to love their wives and to give themselves up for, them, for their wives as Christ did for the church. And that is a huge task. And that is a huge command. And that's the same command that Paul's giving at the beginning of chapter five, when he says, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That is a huge command to follow in those footsteps of Christ who gave literally everything he was for the church and for us. And I think that's really what, like the Christian life should be in a lot of ways defined by this sacrifice. And so I, I think it's important for us today to ask ourselves the question, where can we begin to see this sacrifice in our lives? I think it's important this week in your small groups to go back and ask this question, where, where do we see in our lives areas that we can sacrifice? Because that's going to look different for different people. For some people, I, I think immediately we think money. And yeah, for, for some people, it's probably money. But for some of us, it could be our time, our busy schedules. Is there a way we could carve out more time and sacrifice some of the things in our lives for God, for loving other people, for caring for other people? I've seen, and this isn't a general rule, this is just what I've experienced in my life, is I've noticed that one of the, thing, one of the areas, remember I said I have criteria for what makes someone a Christian? At one moment in my life, I said one of the ways I can tell someone is a Christian is they give up their personal space to other people because that is a true sacrifice. As Americans, we love our personal space. We love our areas. And when I see other Christians welcoming in other people into their homes, I see people who are really truly sacrificing something that is very valuable to them because we love our space. And so what does that mean? On a small scale, maybe someone just needs a place to stay for the night. Maybe someone, ju someone just feels lonely and needs a place to eat a couple meals and welcoming them into the, to your house could make a huge difference. On the extreme end of that would be something like foster care or adoption or I've been wrestling with this, but what about homeless people? Like I understand that there's a lot of safety concerns and things like that, but what if the church were, was welcoming in homeless people into their homes? Like, couldn't that, I mean, that would make a huge difference. Imagine the testament that would be to the world. And I know I'm, I'm oversimplifying that, and I know I'm sure that's complicated, but I was, I was just wrestling with that idea of what that would look like for the church to open up their personal space to someone who the world deems unnecessary or the world has cast aside. I think that would be a powerful witness. Just thinking through some of these ways that we as Christians can begin to sacrifice our time, our personal space, our money, our busy schedules to love other people. Um, just, just kind of, just getting the uh, thoughts out there. Um, but there's, um, there's a ton of ways that we could do that. And so we see that this sacrifice, in a lot of ways, is what defines the love that Paul's preaching in Ephesians 5. Now, I think that it's important to note, too, that when we are sacrificing, that this is actually, what I've noticed, this is interesting. This is different across cultures. Because for us, sacrificing comfort is a big deal. Um, for other cultures like Africa, sacrificing status or power is a big deal for them. 
Because you can follow where someone's heart is by where their money goes. And typically in America, we take money and we spend it on comforts. But in a place like Africa, they, they use money as a sign of power and status. So that's just to communicate, this looks different for different people. This looks different for different cultures. But ultimately, I think we should all be asking ourselves the question, how can we apply this sacrificial love to our lives as Christians? Now, I said that the love that Paul's communicating here is active in a sense that we should be loving and should be sacrificing, but it's also passive. So it's not an either or here. The Christian life is not just about what you don't do. And the Christian life is also not just about what you do. It's both. It's abstaining from some things and then also engaging in some things. And I think different areas of Christianity thrive in different uh, areas of doing or not doing. In some areas of Christianity, I think we're better at not doing. But then in some areas of Christian culture, I think we're better at doing and being active. For me, in my Christian life growing up, I was much better at not doing. I was not good at actually putting my Christian faith into practice in a practical way and engaging the world. I was much better at abstaining from things. And so the abstaining part comes in the latter part of the passage. So verses three through four, Paul throws out um, a lot of examples, sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, impurity, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. And while we could sit here and look at each one of those individually and kind of unpack what they mean and then talk about how we as Christians can avoid them, I think what's, what really helped me in kind of understanding what Paul is getting at here is the odd contrast that he makes. Notice in verse 4, when he, said, when he continues this list, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. And in a way, I, I believe that Paul's bringing, like it seems kind of weird when you first read that. He's listing all these vices, all of these sins. And then suddenly he says, but instead, and he just lists one good thing, let there be thanksgiving. And then after that, he jumps back into the wrath that will come upon those who do all these things. Um, how the, the people who practice these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But there, there's a reason he brings up that word thanksgiving. And I believe that's to contrast it directly to all of the vices that he's just listed, all the bad things that he's just listed. Because really, what is sin? Like at its core, sin is in some ways ingratitude, like ungratefulness, right? Like if you were in prison serving a life sentence and then someone came and said, I'm going to serve this sentence for you. You're free, go. Obviously, that's a Jesus analogy to how Jesus set us free from sin. And then if we took that freedom, went out into the world, and immediately robbed someone at gunpoint, like, or, you know, any crime. If we, if we went out and started committing crimes, we would look at that and say, that is a sign of ingratitude, right? Like, wouldn't that person in prison be kind of upset to hear that we used our freedom to commit crimes, like we committed crimes to get there in the first place and now we use our freedom to continuously commit crimes. Like wouldn't it be an expression of gratitude to then use the freedom that we have to go and make a difference in the world, to go and help people because we've been set free. We are now free to do those things. And so I think at its core, sin is in some ways ingratitude towards God. It's ungratefulness and it's a lack of true perception on what we've really been giving. The sacrifice that Jesus made for us we're commanded to walk in that same love and in that same sacrificial manner that Jesus did for us. And when we don't do that, that communicates ungratefulness to God for the sacrifice that he gave for us. 
And so I think that's really at the heart of what Paul is communicating here because the things that he lists are kind of the opposite of selflessness and the opposite of gratitude because all of the things that he lists are selfish. They're self-indulgent. They're things that I want. See, that's, that's the thing about sin. Sin is easy. I, I never understood when I was in college, all my friends would brag about sinning. They, they would brag about all the things they did over the weekend. And I would always just be like, why are you bragging about these things? It's not hard. Like sinning is not a hard thing to do. It's not impressive. Like I'm not impressed by that. And so like if you really want to do something hard, don't sin. Like that's really hard because it comes so naturally to you. You are inclined to it. It's part of your nature. So to go against that nature and to express the freedom that you've been given, you have been set free from that sin and to go on and not to sin, that's hard to do. Now, I'm not saying you should go brag about that um, because it's an act of grace and mercy that God has given you. Ultimately, he gets the glory for the freedom that you use to not sin, but that's hard to do. When you're tempted to walk away from that temptation, that's hard. And, that, and when you walk away from temptation and choose not to sin, that is expressing gratitude towards God, and he is pleased by that. The Christian life is not just a bunch of rules. It is freedom. And in that freedom, we follow Christ. And I believe that's what Paul is ultimately communicating here is that when we follow Christ, it is an act of thanksgiving. And there you go. There's a thanksgiving message for you right in time for the holidays. But sinning is easy. And Paul, and Paul concludes this, this little section here by talking about the empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And as I said a moment ago, sinning is easy. And I, I was trying to, th I was thinking through what are some empty words that we see in our culture? Like, where, where do we see empty words? And I think that we have a lot of advice that people would give, especially within our sort of postmodern culture, that sound profound at first, but then when you kind of uncover what's being communicated, it's really shallow and really empty. And one of those examples I thought of was whenever it says, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. I, I've, I've had friends before, like, tell me, someone gave me this advice. I, I'm in this really difficult situation, and they told me, do whatever makes you happy. Now, as we saw a second ago, we are naturally sinful, and sinning is easy, and sin tends to make you happy, like, for a short amount of time, and then makes you less happy afterwards. Like, you, your, your happiness actually decreases afterwards. And so, that, that piece of advice while often given with good intentions, ultimately doesn't mean much. Like the, that's empty words, do whatever makes you happy. Because a lot of times the way that someone who's an emotionally unstable state, if they're going through something really difficult, if you tell them do what makes you happy, a lot of times they're gonna make the wrong decision. And so that's really not good advice to give someone. That's not advice to give someone when you really truly care about their well-being. And on the opposite side of that, rather than having empty words, I believe the most powerful piece of advice we could give someone, the words that have the most substance and the most meaning that we could communicate to someone who's going through something hard is do what Christ would do. In a hard situation, do what Jesus would do. Follow him as an example of suffering and imitate that example as best as you possibly can because that is what the Christian life is about. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for these words that you've given us. I pray that the words that we take from this sermon would be full of life, full of joy, and full of substance. 
I pray that we would humble ourselves as we read through the Gospels, as we read through your scripture and ask, what are the parts of this that make me uncomfortable? And how can we look more like you in this world? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.